The first time that I ever met Becky, I was immediately interested for a few minutes. She came up and introduced herself to me. We were at the the dining hall at Beacon Bible Camp, and we had a conversation, and I was like, wow, she's pretty, and she seems cool. And then a couple of minutes into the conversation, she told me that she was about to move to Scotland for three years to go to school, to which I responded, well, good luck with that. It was nice to meet you. I have to go. And like, I was just like, I'm not doing long distance. I'm not going into a relationship long distance. That is a deal breaker. I am not interested. Of course, a year later, she came back to camp, and I came back to camp, and we started talking again, and we did start dating long distance. And long story short, we now have our third kid coming. I've been married for eight and a half years. Uh, and I'm, I'm very thankful, yes. <laughs> Thank you for that cheer. Um, but when I think about that story, I realize I could have missed out on all the best parts of my life because when I first met Becky, I didn't recognize that she was the one, right? And God's sovereignty and goodness, it all worked out best in God's timing. But she was the one, I didn't recognize it, and I made a choice that could have mess, meant missing out on what I have now. I have a neighbor that I meet with regularly to just talk, and I'm trying real hard to share the gospel with him and point him to Jesus. And, you know, he's told me a few times that he's looking for something in life, and he's not sure what it is, but he knows he's looking for it. And I keep telling him it's Jesus. Jesus is the one he's looking for. Jesus is the one that his soul is longing for. Jesus is the answer to the question that he doesn't even know how to ask. And he goes, yeah, maybe. (laughs) He doesn't recognize that Jesus is the one. He's, he's interested in Jesus. We read the Bible together, actually, but it only goes so far. He has his deal breakers. He has his hang-ups. He hasn't recognized the value and the glory of Jesus and how much he needs him. And I'm, I'm hoping and I'm praying that in God's sovereignty and goodness and his timing, it will work out for the best and my neighbor will come to know Jesus. But in the meantime, he keeps making a choice that could mean missing out on the one. Do you know that Jesus is the one? That he's the only one who can satisfy your soul. That each and every one of us spends our entire life pursuing something that we think is going to make us satisfied and give our lives meaning and our souls satisfaction. We, We crave pleasure and security, and wealth, and power. We want to win. We want to prove our worth by working hard. We want to find just the right career that's going to be good. We want our kids to succeed. We want the newest video game, or the bigger house, or the newer car. We want to get married. We want to get divorced. That's a reality, too. We want an adventure in our life, a challenge. Or we want things to be easier. We want more leisure time. Or maybe like my neighbor, you know it's not any of those things, but you don't know what it is. It's something that haunts you like a dream that you can't quite remember. Listen, the one who can fill the hole and give you satisfaction, the only one who can do that is Jesus. Jesus is the one. Today, 
we're looking at a passage in the Bible in Acts 13 where the Apostle Paul actually preaches a sermon. I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon. And the sermon that Paul preaches is exactly that message, that Jesus is the one. If you're taking notes, that's the big idea. Jesus is the one. We need to stop looking for anyone else. We need to stop, we need, we need to stop hedging our bets. We need to stop trying to diversify our portfolio. We need to go all in on Jesus. My hope for us this morning is that we look, as, as we look at this passage together, you will see anew, or maybe even for the first time, how Jesus is the one that you need. He's the one that you were made for. He's the one that will bring satisfaction to your life. So let me set the scene before we jump into the sermon itself. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been following in this new section of Acts, starting at the end of chapter 12, the missionary journeys of Barnabas and Saul, or, or the, he has his name changed to Paul, the Apostle Paul. Last week, we saw them leave uh, where they were in a city called Antioch and go to the island of Cyprus and go through Cyprus. And so we pick up the story today in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. And they continue their journey by going about 300 kilometers northwest by sailing in a boat to the coast of modern-day Turkey. Look at verse 13 of chapter 13 of Acts. It says this. From Paphos, which is where they were in Crete, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. Now those names probably mean nothing to you. Um, but this would be sort of like getting in a boat from Godrich, Ontario, and sailing northwest until you're in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Just like that, except way warmer. Um, and when they get there, they go on with their journey further. Um, verse 13 tells us that not only do they, or sorry, verse 14 says that not, not only do they uh, st- go to the coast of modern-day Turkey, but then they take another trek farther into inland Turkey, about 160 kilometers north over treacherous and dangerous mountainous terrain. It'd be kind of like walking from Toronto to Bracebridge, except, you know, we don't have mountains or the bandits that hide in the mountains and kill people and steal their stuff. So this is an arduous and dangerous journey, which may explain what happens in the second half of verse 13 before they even take that journey. Verse 13 again says, From Paphos and Crete, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So if you remember, Paul and Barnabas had taken a young man named John Mark with them to help them on their journey. And at this point, he bails on them, right? We don't get any detail about why here, but we find out later in chapter 15 that it was not a good thing that he left. Paul refuses to take him on another uh, missionary journey because he, he didn't last, he couldn't hack it the first time. He left under bad circumstances. And so Mark says, I'm done. He goes back to Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas continue their journey. Verse 14, from Perga, they went on, went on to Pisidian Antioch. So that's the 160-kilometer uh, walk through the mountains. And they end up in a, a town called Antioch. Now, they started in a town called Antioch. This is a different Antioch. Because what happened is 300 years earlier, the Greek emperor had a dad named Antiochus, and he really liked him, I guess, and he named 16 cities Antioch, which is super unhelpful if you're trying to figure out where you are in this. But the, idea, the basic idea is that they've had a really hard journey. They lost one of their companions, and now they're in central Turkey, or what, what at that time was called Galatia. And Paul meets for the first time 
the new Christians, the people that are going to turn to Christ, that one day he'll write a letter to, the letter of Galatians. So he goes into this region, this, this town in Antioch, the city in Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, the Jewish people gather in the synagogue. Now again, they're not in Israel, but at this time in history, there were pockets of Judaism all over the Roman Empire. Remember, Paul himself is from Tarsus in Turkey. And on, this, on the Sabbath day, in synagogue, they recognize Paul and Barnabas as traveling teachers, and they invite them to come and give the sermon. Can you imagine doing that? I'm glad that doesn't happen to me when I'm on vacation. Uh, I would just say no, but uh, they get invited, and that's why they're there, right? They're there on a mission trip to preach the gospel. And so he does. And the, the sermon that he preaches is the heart of our text today. And the message that Paul preaches again is that Jesus is the one. And he says three truths about that. And the first one is this, that Jesus is the one that you have been waiting for. You have been looking forward to this man coming, and he's here. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Paul starts this sermon, he gives a brief overview of Israel's history from Abraham to David. And as he does, if you read through there, he's like, yeah, okay, I know this story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those guys, David. But he emphasizes all the way through all the good things that God has done for them. He says, everything that's good that's happened to our people has been the action of God on our behalf. Look, look with me at verse 16. Paul's standing up, motion with his hand, I guess to try and get people to be quiet maybe. And he said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. So there's, there's Jewish people and Gentiles who've converted there. Listen to me. He says, the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. That's one thing that God did. He chose us. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. Even though they were in slavery, God took care of us and made us prosper. With mighty power, he led them out of that country in the Exodus. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. Even though they were so sinful and whiny and miserable, he put up with them and loved them. Verse 19, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. He let them take the promised land in Joshua, the book of Joshua. All this took about 450 years, he says in verse 20. After this, God gave them judges, even though they had sinned and were being taken over by the people around them that they hadn't dealt with when they were supposed to, God raised up judges to save them. He did that until the time of Saul, or sorry, the time of Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. And then Saul ended up being a disaster, and, and he had to be removed. Verse 22, after removing Saul, he, God, made David their king. All these things that God has done good for Israel. And then he says, God testified concerning him, that is David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, None of this so far would have been news to the people listening, right? If there's anything the Jewish people were good at, it was looking back at their history and knowing that God was in control, that he was blessing them, that he loved them, that he was taking care of them. So far, they're all on board with, with what he's saying. But what Paul says next, they're not ready for. Verse 23 says, From this man's descendants, from the, from the line of David, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Paul says, God's done another great thing for Israel, and I'm here to tell you about it. The great thing that actually all of Israel has been waiting for and longing to take place. 
during the, ta- the time of David, as many of you know, which is a thousand years before Paul was speaking to these people in, in, in Turkey, God made a promise to David. That promise was to give David a descendant from his kingly line who would rule over Israel forever. But if you know the story of the history of Israel, the kings that came after David were mostly disappointing. The kingdom fell apart and was conquered, and for hundreds of years they had been under the, the heel of another nation. At this point, it's Rome. And so the people were waiting for God's promise to David to come true, for a promised king to come and rescue them and save them and rule forever. I mean, this this is Lord of the Rings, this is King Arthur, everything comes from this story, waiting for the king who's going to come and save us. They're waiting for the Messiah, the promised king, the Christ. And Paul says, God sent him. God sent the Savior to us. His, His name is Jesus. He's the one you've been waiting for. He goes on to tell them and hear about how God sent a prophet named John the Baptist who prepared the way for the Messiah, just as the Old Testament prophets had said would happen. He said, turn from your sins and repent and follow God and prepare for the Messiah to come. So, so to this point, here's what we need to understand, that what Paul's message is for these Jewish people and Gentile converts to Judaism, it's a monumental message. He says, everything that we've been waiting for for almost a thousand years has come. Once again, as he has many times in the past, God has done incredible things for us. Jesus is the one that you have been waiting for. Now, for us, on the off chance that there's anyone in our room who's an Orthodox Jewish person, who is still waiting for the Messiah like the Jewish people in that synagogue were 2,000 years ago, the simple application for this is, is just this, that your Messiah has come. That Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the one that your people have been waiting for. He came to save you, but not in the way that you were expecting. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But the message is simple. You don't have to wait anymore. Jesus really and truly is the one. Now for the rest of us who aren't Orthodox Jews, which is probably 100% of us, maybe 99.5% of us, the message is still just as simple. The one that you have been waiting for, the one that you have been searching for, the one that your soul longs for has come. And you don't need to look anywhere else. The message that Paul is preaching in this passage, the message that in in turn I am preaching to you is the good news of Jesus who is the lover of your soul. The one who knows you to the very darkest corners of who you are where you don't want anyone to know things, he knows them. And he loves you with a love unlike any other love that you could ever experience. The Bible says of him that he loves you with a love that reaches to the heavens, a faithfulness that reaches to the sky. That he he deals with us with a righteousness that is as firm and unshakable as a mighty mountain and a justice that is as deep as the ocean. He's the one that can make sense of life because he's the author of life. He's the one that can take the pain and the hurt 
and the disappointment that you have with your life, and he can give you comfort and peace. He's the one that can take your sin, the mess that you've made of your own life, the way that you've hurt the people around you, and he can redeem it. He can wipe your record clean. He can transform you to be more like he is. He's the one that you've been waiting for, even if you don't know that you've been waiting for him. Even if you're satisfied with your life and your, comp- your accomplishments and your morality, if you're honest with yourself, you know that your need for him shows through the cracks sometimes. And in those moments when you still feel empty and dissatisfied and sad for no reason that you can figure out, when you have this deep-seated feeling of being a fraud and the anxiety that comes that thinks someone's going to figure this out and know who I really am, that you're not as put together as you try to present yourself as. Jesus is the answer to all of that. You see, the Jewish people knew that every good thing in their history was a gift from the God who loved them, and the same is true of you and me. Every ounce of happiness in your life every good memory that you have, every time something could have and should have gone way worse than it did, every near miss, every height of pure joy, all of those are gifts from the God who loves your soul and who wants you to know the fullest joy of knowing his son, his ultimate gift. All the good things in your life are supposed to point you to the greatest good And that's Jesus. You know what our problem is, though? We get the hints of joy mixed up with the real thing. Instead of looking at the hints and following the map, we settle with what we we can see and think, this is what's good in life. In the words of C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, he says, each of us is an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Just don't get it. Don't realize what could be offered. Ignore the children. (laughs) They're fine, I promise. (laughs) We are far too easily pleased is how C.S. Lewis finishes that quote. Don't trade the, the real thing for the cheap substitute. Jesus is the one you need and don't settle with anyone or anything else. Because Jesus is not only the one that you've been waiting for, but Paul goes on to say Jesus is the one that you can rely on. You can depend on him like no one else. Jesus is the one that you can rely on, right? Paul goes on to speak about Jesus and what happened in his life. You know, they must have been surprised to hear that the Messiah had come and they'd missed it. They hadn't heard of him. But Paul says, well, even if you had heard of him, you may have been like the rest of the Jewish people who did hear about him and just rejected him. Verse 26, he says, Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers didn't recognize Jesus. What's worse, they didn't only not recognize him, but they, they condemned him to death. They killed him. What they didn't realize is that their very actions of rejecting Jesus and condemning him to death were fulfillments of the prophecies about him. The prophecies about the Messiah that they read in the synagogue week after week. And so they put Jesus on trial with the Roman officials, though he was innocent and he was crucified and he died and he was buried. 
Paul says this is all in fulfillment of prophecy, but he doesn't list what prophecies they're in fulfillment of. He, was, he had in mind passages like Psalm 22, which in verse 16 says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. That's a prophecy of Jesus on the cross. He had in mind passages like Isaiah 53 that says in verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, not, not for us, but for his own sins. But, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. See, we all like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He had in mind passages like Deuteronomy 21 from the law that said, if someone is guilty of a capital offense and is put to death and their body exposed on a pole, like Jesus' was, you must not leave that body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Paul alludes to these prophecies about the death and the burial of the Messiah how he would be killed unjustly by sinful men and take the curse of God in our place, the punishment for our sin that we deserve and that he didn't. He alludes to all that, but what he really wants to focus on is what came after the death and burial. He goes into more detail on that. Verse 30, he says, But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now witnesses to our people. Jesus didn't just die he rose again. And there are witnesses who saw him and spent time with him afterward. You can go and find them. This isn't a legend or a myth or even just a spiritual kind of resurrection. This is a literal, historical truth. And here's why this is important, besides just being incredible and amazing. Paul's going to make the point that his resurrection is, that proof, is proof that Jesus really is the Messiah and that God's promises really have been fulfilled in him. Right? Look at verse 32. Paul says, we tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. The promise is fulfilled for us because God raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul goes on to quote from three passages from the Old Testament showing two reasons why this is true. All right? First he quotes from Psalm 2, where God says to his chosen king, you are my son, today I have become your father. So, this is going to take a little bit of explanation, right? We know, as Christians who've been raised to believe the truth about Jesus, we know that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning that he's the eternal God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He's always been the Son of God. He always will be the Son of God. But there's another meaning to the, the, the phrase, the Son of God. You see, God called the kings in the line of David his sons. That was a, that was a, a title for the king. And in Psalm 2, a prophecy about his chosen promised king who is coming, he says to him, Today I have called you my son. I have become your father. And Paul is saying the resurrection proves that Jesus really is God's son, the Messiah. Because you see, Jesus wasn't the first person who showed up in Israel claiming to be the Messiah. Lots of false messiahs had shown up in history, and all of them had ended up killed by Rome or the empires that came before that. 
And Jesus was no exception to that trend, as we know, right? He was disowned by his people. He was called a sinner. He was killed as a criminal on a cross. But here's what's true. God didn't agree with that judgment. They were unjust. They were wrong. And he vindicated Jesus and proved his identity as the Messiah by raising him from the dead. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was saying, this really is my son. He really is the Messiah forever. That's what Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says. It says the same thing. That Jesus was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection proves that Jesus really was the Messiah. But then Paul goes on to show the other reason that Jesus' resurrection proves that God's promises have been fulfilled in him. Not only does it prove that his identity, but it also shows that God's promises can be trusted. His, his promises are sure. You see, God promised to save Israel by sending a king who would rule forever. That promise does no good if that king can be killed. King David was a good king. He wasn't perfect. He had some problems, but he was a good king. But he died a thousand years before this happened when Paul was talking. A thousand years before that, and his corpse was rotting in the ground. And the kings that came after David were mostly disappointing. There were some okay ones too. But good or bad, all of their corpses were rotting in the ground. They were all seeing decay. But that was not true of Jesus. Verse 34 says, God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. Jesus, Jesus is the king who defeated death, and he will never die again, so that his reign is forever. And that makes the promise of God to save his people through him a sure promise. Paul shows that by quoting from Isaiah 55. Right? He says, as God has said, in verse 34, I will give you the holy and sure blessing, blessings promised to David. These promises are sure because Jesus is not rotting in the ground. They can take the promises to the bank. Unlike David, he really lives up to the, the words of Psalm 16, which is the third passage that Paul quotes in here. He says in verse 35, So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. That's not talking about David. He didn't live up to that. It's talking about Jesus, who didn't stay in the ground dead. So Paul's point here is that Jesus is the one that we can rely on. His identity was proven when God declared him truly to be his son, the Messiah, when he raised him from the dead. And his promises are guaranteed because he can't die and will reign forever. Now again, <coughs> excuse me, that's good news for the Jewish people who were listening to Paul 2,000 years ago. right? They now have a king who can't die. Except, they, Jesus didn't rise from the dead and then lead an army against Rome and then rule forever in a kingdom on earth. He didn't do that. We saw back at the beginning of Acts, at the end of Luke, that he was taken back into heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God and to reign forever from there. One day he's going to return to destroy evil once and for all, and at that time he will set up a kingdom on this earth, made new. But it's been over 2,000 years, or, or almost 2,000 years, and it hasn't happened. So, so what does that mean for us? Well, the first thing that we need to remember is it doesn't matter that it's been 2,000 years. That doesn't change the truthfulness of the promise. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then he really is God's son, and he really is the king overall, and he really is still alive, and he really is going to come back, and he really is reigning right now. Now, if you're here and you're skeptical about the fact that Jesus really did rise from the grave, 
I don't have time to go deeply into this, but I would just ask you to, to, to think about the, um, the evidence that's there. Really, really briefly, take into consideration that the Gospels and the Acts and the rest of the New Testament was written within one generation of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it doesn't just say that, say that it happened. It lists the names of eyewitnesses who saw him come back to life. And that we know from history, these eyewitnesses weren't lying because they all died and suffered horribly. They didn't get rich off of it. They didn't become powerful off of it. They all, but all but one of the apostles died a martyr's death. If this was a lie, no one would have believed it. It would have fallen apart under the weight of what it was claiming, and it would have had no impact on history. But all of human history today is measured by the, the coming of Jesus, right? Whether you're saying B.C. or B.C.E. or A.D. or C.E., it all is coming down to when Jesus was born, even though they got the math a little wrong and they're off by a few years. Human history has been hugely impacted by the resurrection of Jesus. I'd love to offer you some books if you're interested in looking more into this and you're a skeptic of this. Uh, two books, A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. I can even get you a copy of those. Come talk to me. This, there's evidence to believe the resurrection of Jesus. But for those of us who are convinced that Jesus really did rise again, that means that right now, he's reigning over the entire world. I want you to listen to how the Apostle John describes our king in a vision that he has for him in Revelation 1. Not meek and mild and weak or anything like that, but Revelation 1 says he saw him dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was, like, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like gl bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was shining, was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's the Jesus who rose from the grave, as he says, to never die again. And who is in heaven right at this moment, reigning, and he will reign forever. He is mighty and powerful and wise and good and he loves you. And even when everything seems out of control and nothing in life makes any sense to us, somehow Jesus is still in control and he has a plan. As Romans 8 says, he's working all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Jesus is the one you can rely on. He's the one that we're waiting for. He's the one we can rely on. But there's one more truth that we have to see about him in this passage that Paul says. And that's this. Jesus is the one who can do what you can't. He's more powerful than you, he's more able than you, and he can do what you can't. Now, it should be clear that the Jesus who rose from the dead, who can never die again, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning over the world, who holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands, can do things that we can't do. That, that should not be a, a hard thing to, to, to grasp, right? But I'm not talking about walking on water. I'm not talking about turning water into wine. I'm not even talking about 
ordering the events of the universe or keeping the planets spinning around the suns and the stars. I'm talking about saving you from your mess. Look what Paul says next in verse 38. He says, therefore, friends, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. And then listen to this part. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. You see, here's the reason Jesus was rejected by his people. Because Jesus didn't come and pat his people on the back and say, you guys are so great, and you're right, it's those nasty Romans who are the sinners that I need to punish. Rather, he, he told them that they were all sinners in need of forgiveness. He went up to the people who were the most upstanding citizens in society, the ones who kept the law really well, and he said, you're, you're like a tomb with whitewashed walls. You look good on the outside, but you got bones rotting inside of you. You're like a cup that's been washed on the outside, but you inside you're full of gunk. He said, listen, God gave you his law so that you would know how to live, but it was never intended to be a way for you to earn God's favor. It can't do that. You can't do that. You may be able to follow it so that you look really good on the outside, but no one has ever had their heart changed by following the rules. The, the, the rules are supposed to be there to show you the depth of sin in your heart. And if you've missed that, you've missed what it means to follow God. The law is supposed to show you how much you need to have your heart changed, how much you need to be forgiven by God for your sin, that you are not good enough. That you cannot do this by your own effort. That, that, that's such an important message that we all still need to hear today. You know, some of us know that we're a mess, so much so that we've just lost hope. You can't fix your problems, and so you wallow in guilt and shame and fear every day. The message that he gives to you is there's forgiveness through faith in Jesus. You don't have to do it yourself. There's hope for you. Other, others of us are on the opposite end of that, right? we kind of all somewhere in the spectrum, but on the two, the two extremes, the two sides of this is that we, we think we're fine. I'm okay. I'm good. I work really hard to follow the rules and keep it pretty well together. You know, whether those rules are the religious rules that we find in the Bible or the the, world's the, rule, the, the rules the world has, right? Those rules can be quite opposite sometimes. Some, there's some things they have in common. But whatever it is, there's rules that we try to follow, and none of us follow them perfectly. Even the most put-together of us aren't as put-together as we try to make out. Sometimes we know it. We hope that no one finds out. Sometimes we're blind to it. But there are days when the cracks show through in us, aren't there? We know just how wretched we really are because of something that we've done or thought or said. You know, those moments may be brief before someone who likes us pats us in the back and tells us, oh, don't worry, you're a good person at heart. And we move on and forget about how awful we know that we can be. Listen, we're, we're all a mess. We're all sinners. Here's what Christians know. True Christians, the followers of Jesus in the Bible, Christians don't think that we're all okay and everyone else out there deserves sin. Or sorry, deserves hell because of their sin. Christians know that we're all broken and we're all sinful and downright awful. We all have potential for incredible evil in our hearts and we all deserve hell. We all need help. 
And when I say that we need help, what I'm not saying is that we need a hand to get back on our feet. No. I'm not saying that we need positive affirmation and positive thinking. No. I'm not saying that we need a life coach to mentor us. No, that's not what Jesus offers. We need a savior. We need someone to redeem our mess. The mess of our sin, to deal with the cosmic debt that we've incurred with God. We need someone to change our hearts. The person that we need is Jesus. He's the only one who can do what we can never do. And he wants to do it for us. Free of charge. Not free for him. The cost was his death on the cross. And his enduring the wrath of the Father in our place. But for us, it's free. All that's required of us is to just open our hands and receive the gift. Verse 39 says, again, we already read this, but let me read it again. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Justification means to be declared innocent of our sin. To have the record wiped clean. All that it takes is for anyone who believes in him will receive that. Now, I know that most of you here have received that gift by faith already, and I praise God for that, for his work in your heart. But honestly, every day we forget this amazing truth, don't we? We give in to sin because we think it's going to be good or because we think we can't help ourselves. We forget how bad our sin is, how great the cost that Jesus paid for our sin, how wretched it is and how much it hurts other people. And we forget the power of the resurrection of Jesus that is at work in us through the Holy Spirit so that we don't have to give in to sin. We forget that every day. When we give in to sin, we feel like he couldn't love us. Oh, God's got to be angry with us. He doesn't want to hear from me. I've got to clean myself up a bit before I can come into his presence again and even tell him I'm sorry. We forget that all of God's anger for our sin was taken by Jesus on the cross. There's nothing left. There's just nothing left. We've been justified in his sight. We've been declared innocent. His love and his grace and his forgiveness never run out. His love reaches to the heavens. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. When we don't give in to sin, when we, when we say no, when we're living okay, when things are, are going well, it's really easy to think that God loves us more than the times when we don't. And certainly he loves us more than those people who I can see are sinning. We compare ourselves. We look down on people. We forget that it's not our works that please God. It's the work of his son that was credited to us. It's all that matters when it comes to God's pleasure on us. Brothers and sisters, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus or we will forget the glory of the gospel. But if you've never put your faith in Jesus, you can do that right now. He's the one that you need. He's the one that your soul is longing for. He's the one that you were made for. All you have to do is recognize your sin and run from it to Jesus. To believe that he is everything that we've said he is today, that the Bible declares about him, that he died and rose again for your sins, and that it's enough. 
He'll forgive you. He'll make you new. And then in joy, you submit to him as your king, knowing that he already reigns over everything. You're just a dumb rebel who hasn't been acknowledging it so far. You know, Paul finishes his sermon by quoting from the prophet Habakkuk. In verse 40, he says, Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And here's the quote. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. These words, they're a hard warning. But they're a call to respond to what you've heard. He says, listen, whether you're respectfully sitting on the fence about Jesus or you're scoffing him, it comes to the same thing. Anything less than full trust and belief and love for Jesus is a deadly error that will lead to facing God's just judgment in your life rather than the mercy and love that he wants to give you. You know, I... Maybe like the first time that I met Becky, you know, my rejection of Becky, God was still gracious and gave me another chance and it worked out in his, in his sovereignty and goodness. Maybe that will happen to you today if you reject Jesus. But there's no guarantee for that. There's no guarantee for tomorrow. So the call of this passage that I'm proclaiming to you is don't put it off. Come to Jesus and trust him right now. He is the one. And if you do, or if you have, you will join the multitudes of angels and all of God's redeemed who will one day gather around the throne and sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. This is Jesus. He's the one. Praise his name.